0: good morning ladies it is so good to be here today and um, i'm so glad that you are Here with us is, well. what a privilege and what a joy to come and share God's Word. Now, I don't want to um, be a whiner, but has anyone noticed that when I'm teaching, the weather is really awful? I mean, I noticed this last year, and then sure enough, first week in January we come and it's cold outside and it's gray and overcast, and I think, well, this isn't good weather. Then the next week, it's even worse. It was colder, and there was actually a mist coming down, and we thought that there might be ice on the roads. And then last week, Vanita hot and it was 65 sunshiny degrees and for a moment i thought maybe there's hope for next week but here we are today and it is i think 17 degrees outside snow and ice all around i can hardly wait for next week but um but i'm not complaining it is a great joy it is a great privilege to be here um, studying god's word together there's no place i'd rather be than studying god's word with you all I am Deb Haygood, and I am one of the uh, teachers on the teaching team. It's very good to be here this morning, week four of our study of Isaiah. And I want to begin by encouraging you. I know this was a long lesson, but after today, we are over the hump. Um, we only have just a few chapters to read in the weeks to come. Next week, we have four chapters, but it's the story of King Hezekiah, and stories are easy, so that'll be okay. And then after that, it will just be either two or three chapters and I think things are going to get easier as we go along the Holy Spirit is opening our eyes and ears to understand these beautiful words of Isaiah and at the end of this time we may not understand everything in Isaiah but we are going to understand a great deal as we walk along with Jesus it will be a great help as we walk along with our Savior This is week four of our study of Isaiah called God's Salvation Symphony. And in review, Isaiah was called by God to deliver God's message to his people, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. They were the children of God. They were the covenant people because God had made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12, more than a thousand years before this. And this message from God through Isaiah to his people, calls them back to God, back to God, God who is majestic, creator, uh, provider, redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, holy, holy God. And he says, come back to me and repent of your sin, turn away from your sin and come to me, or judgment will come. A just God will judge sin. And he also speaks words of comfort and hope to that faithful remnant of believers. And Isaiah tells us God is going to provide a Savior, the Messiah. Vanita talked about that last week in chapter 7 through 12. She talked about Jesus coming, uh, coming the first time. We know that has come to pass. And he's coming a second time. He's coming again. And that is still in our future. Vanita also told us about some of the visual aids that Isaiah used, um, all happened to be baby boys, in in his attempt to persuade King Ahaz to return to God, to trust God alone to rescue Judah. Now, we have to remember, it's very important to remember that Judah is in the midst of a very, very terrible time. Um, All through Isaiah's ministry, Judah is in the midst of a lot of turmoil. Assyria is the big um, world empire up north, and their mighty army is conquering and invading all around. Difficult political times, uh, much unrest and turmoil, difficult economic times. And we know that there was social injustices running rampant. But King Ahaz, a very wicked and evil king, does not trust God. He does not turn back to God. And so he leads Judah into further darkness. Today we're going to look at chapters 13 through 35. Now I know that's a lot. That's 23 chapters. But there is one theme that runs all through those chapters. And it is trust in God alone. Trust in God alone. And that is the title on your outline today. What helps us to trust God? I thought about that and I think the answer is knowing who God is, knowing the character of God. That enables us to trust God. So as we quickly look through these chapters this morning, we're going to talk about the character of God. We're going to focus on that as we go through the chapters. Now on your outline, you will see that I have divided um, this talk today, all these chapters into four parts. Chapters 13 through 23, this is the um Judgment of the Gentile nations surrounding Israel. And then we have chapters 24 through 27. They talk about the uh, end times, the judgment, and the millennial blessing. And then in chapters 28 through 33, the third section, Isaiah gives five woes to try to get Judah's attention and tell them, turn back to God, trust in God alone. And then we end with chapters 34 and 35, and they echo 24 and 27. They, too, talk about the final judgment and the millennial kingdom and the blessing that comes there. So as we come today to chapter 13, the symphony continues. But the music reminds me more of the music from the movie Jaws. How many of you saw the movie Jaws? Do you remember that? Pretty scary in the early 70s. And do you remember that music? Dun, 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 dun. And the louder and the faster it got, the more scared you were because you knew that the great white shark, Jaws, was getting ready to either Take off the end of a boat or the end of a raft or a person. And it was very, very scary hearing that music. Even today, when they play that music, everyone knows, oh, no, Jaws. That's kind of what I hear all through these chapters of judgment, 13 through 23. Thomas Jefferson said, indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. I cannot help but tremble. A little bit as well. Chapter 13 is a transition chapter. Isaiah transitions from God's judgment on Judah, we saw in chapters 1 through 12, to now include uh, the prophecies of judgment on the Gentile nations and cities that surround Israel. And I want to begin by giving you five reasons for why these uh, prophecies of judgment were given ...on the Gentile nations. Now, they were for Judah's ears only. These Gentile nations probably never heard it. But here are five reasons. And you don't have to write these down because I'm going to sum them up at the end. The first one, to preserve God's covenant people from despair when the Gentile nations oppress them. Second, to prevent Judah from forming an alliance with these nations. Third, to predict the eventual downfall of all Gentile powers... Fourth, to uh, proclaim the Messiah's authority over all Gentile powers. And then the fifth is to produce faith in Judah. To produce faith in Judah, trusting God was their only hope. That was what Isaiah was hoping they would get out of these judgments. These prophecies were for the ears of Judah only, so that they would trust in the holy God of Israel. He is powerful and He is sovereign. These are two clear um, characteristics of God that I see in these chapters. He is powerful and he is sovereign and we see these qualities in two names of god that we see in chapter 13 and chapter 14 now we've talked about the names of god before we said that um, the jewish people had different names for god that revealed different parts of his character different parts of his love and that first week we talked about yahweh and whenever in the bible you see the lord in all capital letters that is translated from the word yahweh and this was the personal sacred god of the jewish people and you see it all throughout the old testament Um, it's in every almost every chapter in the old testament and then we also talked about um, the word for god that is adonai and that's when you see the word lord capital l and then small o-r-d and we saw that in isaiah 6 chapter 1 adonai means master today we're going to look at um, two more and in chapter 13 verse 6 we see the first one If you want to turn um, there and read with me. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. And the word there for Almighty is Shaddai. El Shaddai. El is a prefix that means God. And Shaddai means almighty, majestic, strength, all-sufficient, and powerful. El Shaddai means the almighty, majestic, strength. The efficient one all sufficient one now um, we know that God is powerful to carry out all that we see in these chapters today, and the second name of God is in chapter fourteen verse fourteen and this is Isaiah talking about the um, probably the king of uh, Babylon, probably talking about Sennacherib. Uh, Some people think it's referring to Satan here, but probably Sennacherib. And he says in verse 13, he says about him, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And then drop down to 14. This is what um, Isaiah is saying that Sennacherib said, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. The Most High is the name of God here, and it's Elyon. El Yon. El El Yon. It means the ruler over all rulers. It's the universal, all ruling nature of God. And I use the word sovereign on your outline. Sovereign, the supreme ruler or authority. It's the highest ruler of all. God is sovereign. On your verse sheet, you will see that I have um, the definition of sovereign. It refers to the supreme rulership of God so that all of life lies under God's plan and control. He has the prerogative, the right to govern his creation. He is in control. His plan goes forward and it is not thwarted by the sinfulness of man. And we see that in Isaiah 14. Verse 24, if you'll turn there with me. Verse 24 says, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. Drop down to 26. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart Him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? God is in control. We want to remember that these judgments were for Judah's ears, not for these uh, Gentile nations. And they were spoken to remind Israel that no matter what the nations um, do to Israel, that her final destiny is secure, because it is the Lord, not they, who shape the um, events of history. It is God who shapes history. He is the Lord of all nations, and it's his judgment on them with the ultimate goal of salvation for his people. It's God's history, his story. So let's turn and look at our, get our maps out. We're going to be looking at our maps as we go through these first um, chapters here. And I want to also tell you that Hezekiah is now king. Ahaz has died. Hezekiah is king. And the good news is he actually heeds some of uh, the things that Isaiah says in these prophecies. So let's begin with chapter 13, verse 1. Turn back there. It says, An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Now, Babylon is the capital city of Babylonia. It was a beautiful city of culture. And there's many thoughts on when this prophecy of judgment takes place. Some think it may be way um, in the end times in the book of Revelation. Some think it may be referring to when the Persians conquered Babylonia after they had taken Judah into captivity. Some think it's that near um, future of Isaiah when Assyria Conquered Babylon and destroyed it. This was before the Babylon was re- rebuilt and became the world power. You know, it's hard to know, but what I do know is that Babylon is always a rallying point for anti-God activity. Way back in Genesis 11, with the Tower of Babel, we see this, and you might want to read Genesis 11. And then you go on to um, Judah being taken into captivity by Babylon. And to the present day, um, the activity going on in the Middle East to Revelation in the end times when Babylon is mentioned. And we see in verse 11 that their sin is pride. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the of the ruthless pride now we've already seen pride we saw that um in those judgments against judah and so on your verse sheet i've written a definition of pride self-exalting attitude that seeks to dislodge god as the center of all things and deny him the glory due to do him it's trusting in oneself not in god making ourselves the center and not god the center then next we see Assyria. That's in um, 14, chapter 24, and, I mean chapter 14, verse 24. And we've already talked about that. There's only a few verses for Assyria, and that's because last week Vanita told us um, about the demise of Assyria in chapter 10. So there's a few words here, and we see in verse 25 that the sin of Assyria is cruelty and oppression. His yoke will be taken from my people. Their sin is cruelty and oppression. Let's go on to uh, the Philistines. That is in verse 28. This oracle came in the year King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you Philistines. Now, as we see here, King Ahaz has just died. So these oracles are probably not in chronological order. They're more in a geographical um, schematic because we go all around Israel. We were Now we're in the west in um, Philistia. Now let's move to the east with Moab um, 15, verse 1. An oracle concerning Moab. R in Moab is ruined. And we see the sin of Moab in chapter 16, verse 6. We have heard of Moab's pride, her overweening pride and conceit, her pride and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. Once again, it's pride as the sin. We go from Moab to um, chapter 17, verse 1, up north, west to east. Now we're up north, and this is an Oracle concerning Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city. Now you can see on your map, um Damascus is the capital of Syria, or it's called Aram. And last week Vanita talked to us about how the northern kingdom of Israel made an alliance with Aram, and now Isaiah is saying that Assyria will destroy them both. And what is their sin? Why does this happen? Look at verse 10 in chapter 17. You have forgotten God, your Savior. You have not remembered the rock, your fortress. Their sin is they forgot God. They did not remember the Lord, their rock, their only true security. And then we go from the north down to the south in verse uh, 1 of chapter 18. It says, Woe to the land of whirring wings along the rivers of Cush. Now, Cush is that uh, country that borders the upper Nile River. It's next to Egypt. And shortly after this time, they would unite and become um, part of Egypt. And so there's also an oracle concerning Egypt. And that's in 19 uh, verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. See the Lord rides on a swift cloud. Now, from the time of Abraham, the Jews were always going to Egypt in times of trouble. Anything that was happening, they were going to Egypt. And so Isaiah is saying here very loudly, do not look to Egypt for your security against Assyria. Do not even go there because God is going to punish Egypt as well. In fact, he tells um, Isaiah to dress up in his undergarments and to go around barefoot, stripped and barefoot. And we read that in chapter 20, verse 2. And in case you didn't get to this in your homework, I want to read this because I think it's pretty interesting. Let's look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. And he said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around, stripped and barefoot. And then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign important against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away, stripped and barefoot, the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old. Drop down to five there. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be afraid and put to shame. In that day, the people who live on this coast will say, See what has happened to those we relied on? What are we going to do? How are we going to escape from Assyria? You know, you have to love Isaiah because Isaiah is so faithful to always do what God tells him all these years. You know, he's doing visual aids all along. We saw in chapter 1, he's acting like a lawyer presenting a case um, against Judah. In chapter 5, he's singing a love song. Last week, we saw him um, using the visual aids of babies. And he even wrote the uh, name of his son, Mahir Shalal Hasbaz, that long name on a banner, so that they could see that. And now we see that he is walking around, probably in his undergarments and barefoot, to give a picture to the people in Judah of what Egypt and Cush are going to look like when Assyria captures them. Now, let me say he probably um, wasn't naked. He probably had undergarments on and he probably didn't wasn't dressed like this 24-7 for three years, but probably for a part of every day for three years, he was dressed like this as a visual aid. And then um, we go on to chapter 22. <clears throat> and um, this is about... The city of Jerusalem. And we see here it says an oracle concerning the valley of vision. Now, Jerusalem is built up on a hill. And it's surrounded by three valleys. And this is where Isaiah is. And this is where Isaiah is seeing this vision. And so for Isaiah, this is um, the valley of vision. But not so for his people. For they are blind. And we see that all through this um, oracle of judgment against them. In verse... uh, 13, it reads, well, actually, let's start in verse 12. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. You know, God wanted a spirit of repentance. Instead, he sees revelry. And this is so disturbing to Isaiah that in verse 4, he tells us, Therefore, I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. This oracle of judgment, um, this vision that he sees, is about the destruction of his people in Jerusalem. It's probably when um, Sennacherib comes in 701. We're going to talk about that next week. And Isaiah is grieving, and he's sad, and he's weeping, just as God weeps over his children in Jerusalem. Let's go on, and we're going to look at the last prophecy, and that is the um, prophecy against Tyre, the final prophecy in chapter 23, verse one. An oracle concerning Tyre: Wail, O ships, ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed and left without house our harbor. Now Tyre was a great seaport. It's known for its commercial wealth and it is going to be destroyed as well. So we come to the end and we um, see here we started with Babylon way out east and it's known for its great uh, cultural achievements, its military might and we've gone all the way across way to the far west with Tyre that was known for their great commercial wealth. These oracles show the supremacy of God over all participants in world history. They all had threatened or opposed Israel at some time. And right now in Isaiah's day, they um, are all actual or potential partners in anti-Assyria alliances with Judah. And Isaiah is trying to tell them, do not do that. Do not partner up with these countries. They will be destroyed as well. Trust in God alone. Now, Judah didn't learn from these prophecies, but we today can learn from this. We can learn that the crises we face today will not be solved by looking at the world for solutions. The world does not hold solutions. It's not a bigger bank account that will help us or a better job, or different leaders, or maybe it's a different husband that we think will help. Maybe um, it's getting unmarried, or maybe getting married. Maybe it's having our parents, or having children. None of these will solve our problems. The world does not hold the solution for us. Instead, it is God. We need to look to God. God who is powerful and sovereign. He was powerful and sovereign in Isaiah's day. And he is powerful and sovereign today. El Shaddai and El Elyon. On your verse sheet, we have 1 John 2, 17. And it says, The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. God is powerful and sovereign. And knowing this, remembering this, can lead us to faithfully trust in God and in God alone. And the music crescendos as we come to chapter 24 through 27. And here I see God as the righteous judge and the faithful redeemer. These chapters are called Isaiah's Apocalypse. Um, because he unveils the end times in these chapters and that's what apocalypse means prophetic disclosure or revelation unveiling so let's look at your timeline real quickly we're going to look at that get that out and um we look at um the very left hand side of the page we see the cross and that represents the um death and resurrection of jesus christ and that ushered in the church age and that's where we are right now we are in the church age this is a time when the good news of jesus christ is going throughout and gentiles as well as jews are um can believe this message and be saved by the good news of jesus christ The church age is going to end when the tribulation period begins. It's seven years of tribulation. And right before the tribulation period, you see that little arrow? That is the rapture. Jesus is going to come back and take up all the believers that are on earth, all the believers that are alive as well as the ones that have died since Jesus um, was buried and resurrected. They are going to be taken up, and we will be with Christ in heaven. And then those uh, seven years of tribulation happen. Those are years of intense suffering, much, much suffering. But during that time, many Jews, um, some Gentiles, but many Jews will come to believe in Jesus Christ. They will come to salvation in Jesus, and they will be greatly persecuted during this time. And then at the end of that seven years, Jesus Christ comes again, and this is with us, with the saints, in the Battle of Armageddon. And that... um, will usher in then the millennial kingdom jesus will be victorious in this battle and so the thousand-year reign of christ will start and jesus will actually be reigning over the whole world in jerusalem and we will be there we will go to jerusalem and to worship jesus as well so um let's look at chapter 24 and that uh is the tribulation period that we see on the timeline and it says in chapter 24, verse 2, that um, no one will be spared. It says it will be the same for priests as for people, for masters as for servant, mistresses maid, for seller as for buyer, for debtor as for creditor. There will be much suffering and no one will escape. God is now going to judge all nations and all people. There's no advantage to wealth or power or where you are. No one will escape this judgment. And it also says the earth is under judgment. And verse 5 tells us the earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws and violated the statutes and broken the everlasting covenant. Because of that, the earth is suffering and in judgment as well. Now, that everlasting covenant is not the Abrahamic covenant Nor is it the Mosaic Covenant. It's probably that implicit covenant that we are to obey God's Word that was from the very, very beginning. It started with Adam and Eve. Throughout time, we are to obey God's Word. All nations are going to be uh, judged. Evil will be punished. And I wrote on your outline there, what is evil? Because sometimes evil sounds like such a bad word and we're not really involved in evil. But remember those sins. That we saw in those chapters 13 through 23, they were pride and arrogance and cruelty and forgetting God and ignoring God and relying on ourselves or relying on others instead of God. Those are sins that I think sometimes it's pretty easy for us to get involved in. And then in verse 23, we end that chapter. It says, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. It's telling us Jesus will be the victor and he will reign in Jerusalem. And uh, that goes into the vision that Isaiah sees next with chapter 25. He's seeing the righteous and faithful remnant praising God in the millennial kingdom. Christ begins his reign for a thousand years, and that is called the millennial kingdom. And during this time, the faithful remnant will praise God and live in joy and peace. 25 verse 1 says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. And then in verse, uh, let's see, I think it's verse... 9. Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And then the vision continues and Isaiah hears them singing more music. Music, bright and beautiful chords in chapter 26. And we read in verse 3 of chapter 26. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you trust in the Lord forever for the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. And then we go on and we hear more music in chapter 27. And this time he's singing about his vineyard. And I want you to go back and read, read these verses. We talked about the vineyard in chapter five, and this is quite different. The punishment is over and the faithful vineyard is redeemed. We as believers, Today, we have been redeemed, and we can experience peace by faithfully trusting God. On your verse sheet, I have a few um, verses there. Philippians, let's start with John 14:27. This is Jesus telling us, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And then in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul tells us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we exhibit the peace of God... It is a witness to Jesus being our rock and our redeemer. Now, we may be sad over situations in our life. There may be times of grief, but we are not despairing. And there are hard situations. There are difficult times that are perplexing, but we're not crushed and we are not panicked because we know that God is faithful. He is our rock. And so we trust in him, and then we experience this great peace, the peace that passes understanding, fills our hearts and our minds. We, as believers today, can experience peace by faithfully trusting God. And the music softens now, and it changes. It goes down to those low notes of foreboding as we look at chapter 28 through 33. And chapter 28 begins with, Woe to the wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards. Now Ephraim is sometimes, um, can be another name for the northern kingdom. Ephraim is the largest of the ten tribes in the northern kingdom. And so sometimes they uh, they refer to all the northern kingdom as Ephraim. And they were God's people as well. Remember, Israel was um, God's people as well. Um, But they had very few faithful followers. There was very few remnant in uh, the northern kingdom. And they had no good kings. And the northern and the southern kingdom have been divided now for um, over 200 years. 200 years with no good kings and um, before it's been 300 years since King Saul came on the scene. You remember it was Saul and then King David and then Solomon and then the kingdom split and it's been 200 years and this woe is probably given just um, a very short time before Assyria will take uh, the northern kingdom uh, and totally destroy them. They had relied on their wealth and their wisdom and foreign alliances, and they had completely and blatantly ignored God's Word. In fact, we see them mocking Isaiah, who presented God's Word to them. Look at verse 9. This is the northern kingdom speaking, and it says, Who is he t- uh, trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those just taken from the breast? For it's do and do and do and do, and rule on rule and rule on rule, a little here and a little there. This is a child's rhyme, and they're making fun of Isaiah and saying, Oh my goodness, enough already, you keep telling us this. And so Isaiah says, Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the resting place. Let the weary rest. But they would not listen. And then if you drop down to the end of 13, it says, so they will go and fall backward, be injured, ensnared, and captured. The total destruction of the northern kingdom. And then he goes on in 14 and he says, but Judah, you haven't done much better. You have scoffed God's word as well. And so he goes on and the next woe we see is to um, Jerusalem again. It's in chapter 29. Verse 1, it says, Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Now, I don't know why he calls Jerusalem Ariel there. There's a couple thoughts, but we know it is Jerusalem because that is the city of David. And he goes on to say here, uh, to talk again about their meaningless religious rituals. It says you just are going through the motions. You're going through the show. And what is so amazing is that you think I don't even know it. You think that as God, I don't know your hearts and I can't see your actions. And we read about that in verse uh, 15. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? He does not make me. Can the pot say of the potter, he knows nothing? I mean, how foolish, how childish to think that God, the great Holy One of Israel, does not know what they are doing and what they are thinking and what their hearts are really like. You know, it reminds me of our daughter Rachel. When she was two years old, she would um, get out of bed after she was in bed at night, and she would walk backwards out of her room, down the hall, and into the bathroom. And um, when she walked past the door, Scott and I would be sitting in the den, and we would see her walking backwards. But she thought, since she couldn't see us, we couldn't see her. And so she would do this every night walking backwards, and we would try so hard not to laugh. You know, it was the foolish thought of a child to think, if I don't see you, then you don't see me. This is how childish and foolish um, Jerusalem is being here, to think God doesn't know their actions. God doesn't understand. Their hearts, and then we have the la- uh, third and fourth woe in chapters thirty and thirty one and they, these woes deal with making an alliance with Egypt and depending on their military might. verse uh, one of chapter thirty says "Woe to the obstinate children you know God even calls them children. To those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt. And he says even in chapter 31, verse 1, do not go down to Egypt. He says it so plainly. But they don't listen. They ignore him. And so we see um, that God tells Isaiah... We're back in chapter 30, verse 8. He says, Go now, write it on a scroll for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. He says, Write these woes, these prophecies down, so that when all these things come to pass, they can't say, Well, you never told me this. Now, this sounds pretty familiar to me. I do this all the time with Scott. He does it to me. I tell him something, and then I say, I told you that. And he says, You never said that. And then I say, you know, next time I'm going to write it down so that it'll be in writing. Well, that's what God is saying to Isaiah. Write it down so they will see that what I have said will come to pass. And he says, write it down in verse 9 because these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They're a little bit like the northern kingdom here. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And they say to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. It's like going to church and telling Ted, hey, will you stop talking about God? Will you stop telling us about Jesus? That's what these people are saying to Isaiah. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says because you have rejected this message. Instead, you relied on oppression and depended on deceit. This sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly. In their fear, they have run wildly to all these other things to protect them. And this sin has just built up and built up until it comes crashing down around them. Everything that they put their trust in... Um, will fall apart. Only God is their security. And then we see these great words of compassion from God in verse um, 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. And over in 18, he says, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. And in verse 19, how gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. God is a God of grace and compassion god longs for us to call out to him so he can show us grace and compassion in fact this section i've called um god is gracious and god is compassionate you know it had been a long time that isaiah had been preaching this message to the people probably over 20 years and yet god longs to show them compassion and so it is with us today God longs to show us his grace and his compassion. And then we see the fifth woe in chapter 33, verse 1. Woe to you, O destroyer, you who have uh, not been destroyed. And this is talking about Assyria and the um, army of Assyria. And the woe against them. And what I like in this chapter is that he um, contrasts the righteous with the unrighteous. And we see the righteous in verse 15. So let's set our moral compasses to these verses as we read them. He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil, this is the man who will dwell on the heights. We see here that the righteous are truth tellers and they live their lives like they speak their words. It's kind of like Vanita's point last week that um, the lyrics of your life match up with your delivery. And they're not um, cheaters. They're not taking more and leaving less for others. And that says that they close their ears to evil plots. That may not be plots of murder for us today, but what about words of gossip that hurt someone's reputation? And it says, they shut their eyes to even contemplating evil. Philippians 4.8 tells us, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Think about these things. The basic problem, the underlying sin for all these woes was ignoring God's word, rejecting and mocking God's words. So we want to learn from this. We do not want to ignore God's word. We must read it. We must listen to it. We must study it just like you all are doing today. We must memorize it, hide it in our hearts, and we must meditate on God's word. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against thee. When we are in God's word, then God replaces fear with quiet strength as we trust him. Quiet strength as we trust him. And now we've come to those last two chapters, chapters 34 and 35, and the music has reached a grand crescendo. It's loud and powerful. Maybe this is the hallelujah chorus, king of kings, because that's what we are about to see here. In chapter um, 34 and chapter 35 echo the same message as chapters 24 and 27, the eventual judgment and the millennial Blessing. We see Jesus, the warrior who comes in vengeance in the battle of Armageddon to destroy evil and to usher in the millennial kingdom where he will reign as king of kings for a thousand years. This is the final stage of God's eternal plan for his people. And this is what the um, people of God have been waiting for all their lives. It's what they've been waiting for since the time of Abraham, this millennial kingdom. It's what they thought were expecting when Jesus came the first time. They didn't understand the suffering Messiah. And this chapter 34 is the answer to those questions that we're always asking. When will God stop injustice and judge all the evil around us? Why do uh, bad things happen to good people? When will the unjust get what they deserve? Why do the wicked prosper? Here's the answer in chapter 34. This is when all that is going to be taken care of. I read a quote that said, God will heal all human hurts and restore justice to his world on his time schedule and in his ways. You know, sometimes we think God is slow. He's slow in righting the wrongs. But Second Peter 3 reminds us of this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God tarries. He takes his time so that more will come to know him. And then we go into chapter 35, this great, beautiful passage of the millennial kingdom. We see um, the beauty and the joy and the peace of the millennial kingdom where we will live with Jesus As he rules from Jerusalem, we'll live with Jesus, praising his name. And we see in verse 3 and 4, these words of encouragement. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. We can trust in God today for our hope, our hope that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming back. And that hope is a certain and sure future with Jesus. You know, sometimes it's hard to explain that hope. Thomas Aquinas said that to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. But to one without faith, no explanation is possible. But we can have hope. We can trust in God because he is who he says he is. And we know many of these things in Isaiah have already come to pass. So if he is the God of history that we can trust, we can trust him for today. And then we can believe the future is certain as well. He is the God of history. He is the God of the future. Through his word, through prayer, through experience, blessings, we know that God is who he says he is. And as we remember that, we can trust him and we can trust in him alone. I want to close this morning with a song that helps me to remember who God is. And I can still remember, makes me um, tear up, the first time that I ever heard this song. Um, It was almost 30 years ago. I had two little children and a friend of mine came with this. It was a record album and she had two little toddlers and she said, you have got to hear this song. And I put it on the stereo and because there were these toddlers running around, I put the headsets on and the music filled my um, mind and my heart and I fell to my ease knees i actually fell to my knees as tears were streaming down my face as i felt the majesty and the sovereign power and the love of god wash over me so as this music plays i want you to close your eyes and think about el shaddai thank you and bless you
1: El die, El Shaddai, El, Shaddai, El, El Adonai, Each to each you're still the same, By the power of the name, El die, El Shaddai. And through the realm You save the son of Abraham Through the power of your hand you Turn the sea Should I shall die.